Well, it has been great to sing the praise of the Lord together, and we look forward today to hearing what God has to teach us from His Word. You know, one of the, um, one of the amazing tools we have here in technology is all of our services here, we don't live stream, but we do record our sermons, and you can listen to them later. But I would just caution you to listen responsibly. And now, here's the place where uh, Jeff and Carrie and Dave, who listen to our services, my in-laws, my, uh, my parents-in-law, my brother-in-law, they listen to our services faithfully and enjoy stories about my kids, find themselves in a sermon introduction. As they drove to church this morning, they always listened to one of our services, and they were fiddling with the radio, and they hit a curb on the way to church. So... Listen responsibly, okay? And Jeff and Carrie and Dave, when you hear this, please listen responsibly, okay? Please turn with me today to John chapter 3, if you haven't done so already. We have been making our way through the gospel of John with this theme that, we, that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. John was a disciple of Jesus, was an apostle of the early church, one who helped in the establishment of that church, and and writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit these things that he saw and observed. John is an eyewitness to the things that he records here. And of course, um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a lot of times records even some of the things that that he wouldn't have readily or or seen immediately, like things that Jesus thought or things that that may have happened um, outside of when he was around. Uh, but John was, a, was the eyewitness of who Jesus is and what he did. And last week, we looked at man's greatest need through this man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. And one who was, was so focused on the physical and the temporal things of this life, he was a Pharisee, one who had done all of these things, hoping to gain righteousness. But Jesus showed him the greatest need that man has is to be born again through Jesus Christ, through himself, the Messiah. And so... We're going to pick up this time where, where, the, where kind of what happens is, is the interaction between Jesus and, Ze- and um, Nicodemus ends, but Nicodemus is still there, and now Jesus goes on, on a discourse to, to, to expound on what is salvation and what, what is the love of God that brings about this rebirth in people's lives, and look today at this passage about God's great love. Let's read the text together, John three eleven through 21. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity we have to open your word today and to read it. 
and to meditate on it and to, to pull out from this text what it is that you want to show us about the great love of God that has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And we ask today that your Holy Spirit would do its work in our hearts. That you would have free reign over anything that's going on in our lives. That you, you, we would quiet our hearts and our minds and just sit quietly before you today asking you to teach us through the word of God. Lord, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different life experiences. We come from different upbringings. And we all have our unique views on life, but the only view that matters is this, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. At the end of the day, that's where it all drives. And Lord, we ask that you would use your word today to convict the heart of one who may hear these things, who who doesn't have a relationship with you, who has never experienced the love of God being poured out on their lives. Lord, to the Christian today, would you continue to show them how you want to sanctify them, how, what, what it is in their life that, that you want them to eliminate with your help or, or what it is you want them to, to live out in your power that we have failed to do so. Lord, may we give you everything we are because you deserve no less. Meet with us today. Do your work. And we give you the honor and the glory for it. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the greatest joys I have in life is raising my kids. If you've been here long enough, you know I talk about them probably way too much, right? But one of the greatest joys I have about raising young children, because that's the stage of life we're in, is the daily changes that go on in their lives that add up to these long-term, you know, growth, uh, observable growth in their life. And so... Our, our two-year-old, now two, she had a birthday yesterday, is Joanna. She's our, our second daughter. She's our third child. Um, some of the most exciting changes that have happened in her life, and, and some of you have observed this, is she's just developed this, this very verbose vocabulary. I, I think it's really funny, you know. You, what you didn't used to understand, you come t- you talk to her the next week, and it's like all new words, right? And one of the things um, that I'm trying to work with her, I've been working with her for a long time on this, is I've tried to teach her over and over again how to say, I love you, right? Because that's what every dad wants to hear, right, from, from their daughter. And she's really funny about it because she'll look at you and she'll say, I, and she'll wait. She'll wait for you to fill in the love, and then she'll go, you, right? <laughs> and you know what, though? She doesn't have to have those words to express that. Because the smile on her face when I enter the room, the babbling on when I'm nearby or, or running, and the, the running and flying leap into a hug, they're enough to show me that Joanna does love me, her dad. In this passage before us today, we read about how God has expressed his love for us. He has told us in his word that he loves us. And he has acted on that love through the sending of Jesus to live and die for us. Salvation from sin is free, but it's not cheap. It cost the Son of God everything to offer this to us. 
all because he loves us with, as the hymn writer puts it, love beyond degree. And here in this follow-up section of Nicodemus's interaction with Jesus, we read about God's great love. It is a love not based on who we are, but on who God is. It is a love that moves us from condemnation to salvation. It is a love that changes lives. And what we see in this passage is that the love of God is perfectly demonstrated in Jesus Christ, given to save us from our sins and give to us new and eternal life. If you want to see the love of God, look no further than the pages of the Bible that share with us who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus Christ is the fullest expression and embodiment of the love of God. His life, his death, his resurrection, that is the gospel. And that is exactly what God has given to us to show us exactly how much he loves us. And here, in what is probably the greatest passage, if not one, one of, if not the greatest passage of God's love, we see that love of God fleshed out for us and what it means for us. In verses 11 through 13, we read this, that God's great love reveals to man the things of God. God loves you and me so much that he reveals to us who he is and what he's done. We see here, Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, we speak that what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, there's a problem here in the life of Nicodemus. There's a problem here that not only Nicodemus faces, that Nicodemus struggles with, but people in our world struggle with today as well, and that problem is the problem of unbelief. You see, Jesus has spent time showing Nicodemus his need for new birth. We talked about that last week when we talked about man's greatest need. He has confronted Nicodemus's purely physical, works-based outlook on life and, and how he believes that that will help him gain a right standing with God. And here, Nicodemus, a learned religious leader of Israel, is incredulous at the things he has heard. We, we read that multiple times last week, he said this, how can these things be? He couldn't connect it because he was so concerned with the physical that he was missing that the greatest need that man has is spiritual. It is not for a lack of divine revelation, right? Jesus the Son of God and God himself stands there telling him these things. I mean, can you imagine having a conversation with, with God, the creator? That's who Jesus is. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And here Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, giving him everything he needs to know. Nicodemus must make a decision, and Jesus here confronts him on this decision he must make. And what Jesus does here in verse 11, he, he, he's testifying to the veracity of what he has just shared with Nicodemus. Now, if you go back to, to, chapter, or to chapter 3, verse 2, we read this. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you do unless God is with him. Okay, so that's the statement that Nicodemus led with when he came to meet Jesus. Now, Jesus is echoing that statement in verse 11. When he says to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Nicodemus testified that he and others, presumably other members of the Sanhedrin and or the Pharisees, they had observed that Jesus uh, experiences the blessing of God on his ministry. And we said last week, that is indeed not the whole truth because Jesus is God. He's not just a rabbi or a teacher experiencing the blessing of God. Here, Jesus used the same word to express to Nicodemus that he and those who place their faith in him, what they know to be true. That word here that Nicodemus used in verse 2 and that word that Jesus used here in verse 11, that word know, communicates that which is seen and verified. It is a hard fact. It is not saying, well, I, I kind of know or I, I might know. It is saying, no, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because I have seen it, I have experienced it, it is verified. And the use of the, the, the plural here is somewhat ambiguous. Jesus says, we testify these things. Some believe it is a sardonic use of that word as Nicodemus used we when he came to Jesus. Others believe that Jesus is referring to himself and, and as well as John the Baptist and his disciples. Why? Because those are the ones who have experienced what it is like to place faith in Jesus for who he is. And, and I think that's the better understanding of that word here, that Jesus is talking about not just himself, but those who are his closest followers, those who, who have placed their faith in him as the Messiah. And contrary to Nicodemus and others like him, these others had firsthand experience with the regenerative power of God through Jesus. And their faith, though it was not perfect, and though it certainly was in need of continued growth, had been rewarded and verified because God, those who come to God in faith, are not left empty-handed. But God rewards their faith and meets them and shows himself to them. But even though the Son of God and those who had trusted him testified of these things, Nicodemus and his fellow rulers did not receive it. At the end of verse 11, Jesus said, you do not receive our witness. And the word you there is the plural use of that word. He's referring to Nicodemus and all those that Nicodemus represented when he came to Jesus. The message of the Messiah is not readily accepted by everyone. It is a message that we must take into our lives with complete faith and trust. You see, when you come to Jesus, it is not a halfway commitment or a hope, but it is an all-out dependence on who he is and what he's done. It is not a blind leap into the dark as God has surrounded us with the evidence we need to see him and given us his word to know him, but it is something that does require our response. And Jesus goes on to inform Nicodemus that his lack of faith and his lack of trust will garner him no further explanations from, no further deeper explanations about the things of God. Jesus said in verse 12, I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus was a man who was wrapped up in the physical earthly actions. And so Jesus, in physical earthly terms, explained to him the deeper truths. 
He used the picture of, of being born again to express that, that spiritual truth of finding regeneration and new life in himself. He showed Nicodemus that that is what man needed to have. And that regeneration does take place here on this earth. See, if you die and enter eternity, it is too late to place your faith in Jesus Christ. So that regeneration has to take place here. And in a sense, then, it is a physical thing because because it does have to happen while you're physically present on this earth. And since Nicodemus refused to believe that, he would receive no further deeper truths in this matter because if he could not trust and embrace Jesus with that which was most easily obtainable to him and that which was so clear, he would never be able to receive that which was deeper. See, here's the thing. Nicodemus had assented mentally that Jesus was a great teacher. I mean, he came with that, with that uh, um, praise, heaping that upon Jesus' life when he first approached him. He even recognized Jesus as an equal who was enjoying God's blessing. But he was not willing to humble himself and admit that he needed Jesus to do that work in his life. To do so would be to admit his sinfulness and his inability to save himself. Nicodemus has spent his entire life cultivating a facade of outward righteous acts that were supposed to gain this, this favor with God for him. And he truly is an illustration of what Paul would write later in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God before they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And in our day, we see responses like this to Jesus as well. There are those who, like Nicodemus, are not willing to admit they need Jesus alone for salvation from their sins. They trust in works, in Mary, in the blessing of a spiritual leader or in something else in order to get them into heaven or as part of what gains them heaven. And in their mind, it is foolishness to trust in Jesus Christ alone. There has to be something else that I have to do. Jesus says there is nothing else. Still, there are others who aren't bothered by eternity at all. They are content in their sin. They are blind and continuing on in it. They do not perceive the grave danger they are in and the path of destruction that they tread. And to leave that path to them is foolishness again. Why? Because this is so much fun and this is so inviting. And and why would I ever leave that? I don't really have a problem. But the destruction will come and the end will be awful indeed. The problem of unbelief is a very real problem. And the end of unbelief is a terrible end. Only Jesus can show us who we are and what we need. Because God's great love reveals to man the things of God. Because the only source of God's revelation is God himself. Jesus said in verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus states that the knowledge about the things of heaven can only come from a direct source. There is no one, Jesus says, who has ascended into heaven into the very presence of God so as to understand the plans of God. 
But Jesus alone is qualified to tell us these things. Why? For he is the Son of God. He came, as the title he uses of himself most often in fulfillment of the prophecy that's found in Daniel, as the Son of Man, the fulfillment of messianic prophecies to tell us the things of God. He has been with God the Father since eternity past as the member of the Trinity, what we call the three-in-oneness of the only God, and and he alone knows the plans of God, so he alone is equipped and qualified to tell us what these plans of God are. Everything you and I know about God and God's work comes from God. You realize that? We don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I know all these things about God. It just came to me. You know, I'm just, I'm just so knowledgeable. Everything we know about God has to come from God. Because we are sinful and we are broken. And God is our creator. He is holy and perfect. And he tells us about himself. Now, we can hear and observe testimonies of others who have experienced the things of God in their own lives, but the ultimate authority on God is God. Which is, by the way, when you come to Beaverton Baptist Church, you don't come to hear some guy stand in the pulpit, you come to hear what God says. Because God is the authority on who he is and who we are. God's love reveals to man the things of God. And in his love... God sent Jesus and gave us his word. And if you'll remember from John chapter 1, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. In his love, God has not left us ignorant, but able to hear and understand the truth. And now, Jesus unfolds for us this truth about God's love and its provision for our salvation. What we see in verses 14 through 17 is that God's great love provides for man the motive and the means for salvation. And when we talk about salvation, we talk about new birth. We're talking about salvation from our sin. We're talking about eternity in heaven with God and new life. And we see the fulfillment of salvation in Jesus. Continuing on, Jesus continues to talk and to to expound on these things for Nicodemus. And again, Nicodemus is a learned scholar, and he is specifically a scholar on the Old Testament. So where does Jesus yet again point him? He points him to the Old Testament to show Nicodemus that he, the one who is standing before him, the Son of God, is a fulfillment of the things found there. We read in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus references here an event that occurred in the lives of the Israelites as they were, they were coming from Egypt into the promised land. Now, what, what had happened in the lives of the Israelites is they had gotten to the threshold of the promised land in a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they had sent 12 spies into the land to, to, to scout it out. And 10 of those spies had come back with a negative report and two of them with a positive report, you know, saying, hey, there's, there's a lot of hard things there, but God has given it to us. And the people sided with the majority and refused to enter the promised land, and so God punished the people for their disobedience. And everyone from 20 years up, an entire generation, would never enter the promised land, save for two men, Caleb and Joshua. The rest of them would die as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. 
Now, if you know anything about the Israelites in the Old Testament, and if you know anything about their wandering in the wilderness or their journey from Egypt to Canaan, you know, maybe one word comes to mind, whiny, right, or complaining, right? You ever, you ever think about those words when you think about the Israelites, right? Okay, just me, awesome, all right? Take that one home and read, you know, you can use that one, all right? And true to form, the Israelites begin to complain again in their punishment from God. And here this story unfolds. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That, that worthless bread, by the way, is manna that God sent from, his, from heaven every day for people. Okay, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And I don't have time to preach a a message on this story. Believe me, I want to, okay? But this account shares with us one of the judgments of God that that he gave on his people for their disobedience, that they're crying out against him. And calling the things of God that they had brought on themselves, they blamed it all on God and, and God's leader. And so... God sends judgment on his people, and, 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 and just so you know, right, the punishment of sin from God has the same effect every time, or has the same purpose every time. The purpose is to draw his people back to himself. It is not God maniacally laughing in heaven saying, see, what do you think about that now? But it is God in his love trying to draw the hearts of his people back to himself. And it works, right? The people cry, hey, we, we messed up. Right? And so what does God tell Moses to do? He doesn't take away the serpents. He says, you take the serpent, you make a bronze one, you put it on a pole, and everyone who looks there will be healed. Now, we must recognize and understand that the remedy that God gave for Moses to enact for the people's salvation, at best, is unconventional. Right? Indeed, with the evolution of modern medicine, it perhaps even has become more unusual to our ears. Should someone be bitten by a snake, there was no calling for a doctor, taking one to an emergency room, or administering an antidote that would save the person. No, the only way to be made well again was to look upon this bronze serpent that had been erected by Moses at God's command. What does this require? It requires a response of faith. It tested whether that person would truly believe and trust God or not. The ones who looked upon it were acknowledging their guilt and sin that had brought on such judgment and sought healing and forgiveness from God by looking upon it. The one who would not entrust his health and well-being, the one who would entrust his health and well-being to himself or to man's wisdom would never find it, but he would die 
from that bite. And so Jesus tells us that that serpent on the pole in that story in Numbers is a type of himself. And these come up throughout Scripture, types. And and what we mean by that is a type is an anticipation of Jesus. And what it does is it finds its final, full, and transcendent fulfillment in Jesus alone. And Jesus references these throughout the Gospels. Jesus tells us here that just as Moses lifted up this serpent in the wilderness, so too must he be lifted up. And what he is doing, he's predicting his own death on a cross that would come nearly three years later. And I think it is interesting here. Notice what he says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, what's the next word? Must the Son of Man be lifted up. This word, even in the, here in the original Greek language, emphasizes the necessity of something that must take place. In order for there to be salvation from sin and fulfillment of God's plan, Jesus had to die. Because the price of sin is death. And so, for God to offer eternal life to mankind, there must be a sacrifice. And Jesus came as that sacrifice for mankind. This is the fulfillment of salvation in Jesus. Jesus continues that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus' death cancels the need for our own eternal death and our separation from God because of our sin. And instead, through belief in him, we can enjoy life eternal. It is that which we experience here on this earth in regeneration and living for him and that which we will fully enjoy when we reach eternity. That's what Jesus died for. And just as the serpent on the pole granted temporal life for those affected by that punishment. Remember, if they were bitten by the snake and they looked at the pole, they would live. But what's going to, what happened to every single one of those people one day? They were going to die, right? Looking at the serpent on the pole didn't, didn't grant them you know, immortality. And just as that, looking at that snake in God's plan, granted them this temporal life, looking unto Jesus in faith and trust grants us eternal life. That's why the the anti-type, that's what it's called when you have a type and an anti-type, the anti-type is always greater than the type. Jesus is always greater than anything that came before. And all of this is motivated by the great love of God. Jesus continues in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In what is, without a doubt, the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, Jesus shares with us the heart of God's saving plan. How many of you, before you walked in today, knew this verse, John 3.16? Right? You, 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 you've probably heard it from the time you were a little kid. You've seen it, you know, spray-painted on... Um, on the side of a building, right? We call that, by the way, evangelism, okay? You know? I don't condone that, okay? 
You turn on the TV and you see it on the eye black, right, under somebody's eyes or whatever. We, we've heard John 3.16. And, and, and indeed, if you were going to translate one Bible verse into every language, this is the one you would translate because it so succinctly tells us the message of the gospel. And so I invite you to gaze upon this verse with me and wonder today. For without the love of God shown to us, there would be no hope of salvation. Jesus speaks of God's incredible love for the world. When, when John says that, when Jesus says that there, for, who, for God so loved the world, he's talking about all of mankind. You see, you and I are God's personal creation, created in his image. And that image has been marred by sin, but that image is still there, though it is stained and obscured by our sin. And God in his infinite wisdom and love, get this, God in his infinite wisdom and love knew in eternity past before he created the world, before he created you, that you and I would choose sin. And yet he created us anyway. My friend, that is a love greater than you and I will ever know. The plan of redemption through Jesus Christ was not plan B. It was God's plan all along. That is how much God loves us. It is a love that leaves us speechless. It is a love that is vast, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. And when we realize the insufferable nature of sin in the eyes of God, it is then that we understand the incredible gift of his love. And and you may have heard this simple message before. Hey, God loves you. How many of you have ever had somebody say that to you? Hey, God loves you, right? Again, you see it on the bumper stickers. You see it on the, you know, it's really great when that's on the bumper sticker of the car who cuts you off in traffic, right? Hey, God loves you, okay? That's right up there with evangelism, okay? That simple truth is incredible. But sometimes you and I, we miss the wider picture picture of what makes it incredible. Because God is holy. And because God is holy, that magnifies his love. Habakkuk wrote in Habakkuk 1.13a, You, he's talking about God, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Understand this, God is set apart from sin and has nothing to do with it. Sin has no part in the presence of God. Sin cannot enter eternity with God. Therefore, your sin, no matter how much or how little you think you have, is offensive to God. But because God loves you, he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to earth to live perfectly as a man and God at the same time, to die on a cross and to rise again, offering you salvation from sin and its grip and its penalty in your life. So I want to take this verse, John 3.16, and I want to show you 10 words. Okay, and this is not original from me. This is a commentator. His last name is Phillips. He pointed these words out as I was reading this week, and I, I just couldn't get away from it. There are 10 words here, and we're going to take them in five pairs that highlight God's great work of love in our life. Notice, if you would, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And those first two words I want you to note are the words God and son. Notice that this is the giver and the gift. The eternal, holy, 
infinite God gave his infinite, eternal, and holy Son who is one with him. What God gave you is not like what sometimes siblings do or or someone who's given to someone who is needy, right? Our family, I was just talking to somebody about this before church, our family loves to go um, looking for, for good deals on things, okay? I just, I find great joy in that, you know, spending a lot less than something is, is worth originally. And so on Friday, we went out um, to Mount Pleasant to celebrate my daughter's birthday um, at the Children's Museum, but we left early because there's a great goodwill and a Salvation Army out there. And we spent two hours going through those stores, right? And, and how many of you ever donated something to Goodwill or, or Salvation Army, right? And why do we donate it? Because we, we don't need it, we don't want it, we don't use it. God's love is not like us giving to the Salvation Army or Goodwill. God doesn't give us the leftovers or the things he doesn't need. God gives us his best. That's what we read in Romans chapter 8 this morning, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God gives us his best. He doesn't hold back. God gave us his son. Next, I'd like you to notice these two words. Loved and gave for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son this is the motivation of what god did and the action that proves that love you see true love is followed by actions of that love this love when when john uses this word he uses the word agape and that word communicates a selfless sacrificial love that chooses to express itself to the object of that love and does not wait for one to be deserving of that love. If God waited for you and me, friend, to be deserving of his love, how many of us would ever experience the love of God? Not a single one. And that is true love. Therefore, out of that love, God offers his salvation in his son as a gift. Again, this weekend, we had a wonderful time of celebration in our home. Both my wife and our daughter, Joanna, enjoyed birthdays over the span of three days. So it was kind of an exciting three days in our house. And, you know, I have a question. Is it required to give one gifts on her birthday? Some of the husbands are like, yeah, it's required, okay, right? Okay, now I suppose there's no law that mandates we give gifts, right? There's no law that mandates that you buy your kids a gift or you buy your spouse a gift for their birthday or whatever it may be. But we give gifts to both our daughter and to my wife, not out of some social construct or expectation. But you know why we give those gifts? Because we love them, right? We love them so much that we want to see them happy and enjoying the things that they like. And so that love motivates us to do what? To think creatively, and then to give sacrificially. God's love motivates him in the same way towards us. He he gives freely, and there's nothing we can do to earn this. It is only by his grace, and his giving of his son is the greatest expression of love. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
That is the great expression of God's love. Third, if you would notice these words, world and whosoever, says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever or whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has given out of his love without distinction and without stipulation. His gift is available to those from every tribe and tongue and nation. His gift came through the nation of Israel, but it was not limited to the nation of Israel as God promised to Abraham that through you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. But that gift, though broad, is also very personal. It requires an individual to act upon what he has heard and seen and what he has been convicted of, that he may personally know his creator as Lord and Savior. The vilest of sinners is included in the call to the Savior. But this call is also narrowed to those is narrowed to exclude those who reject Jesus. As John would write later in one of his letters, 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I told you last week there are a lot of things, within, even theologically, that you and I can get wrong and still go to heaven. You cannot get this wrong. You must have Jesus Christ and Him alone. Fourth, We see these words, believes and have, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The one who places his faith in Jesus will not be disappointed. The hand held out in faith is rewarded by the gift of eternal life. Again, my mind was reminded of my kids who stand sometimes on the stairs of our house and sometimes with very little warning yell, catch me! Right? And they what? They jump. Why? Because dad's going to catch me. That's faith, right? And by the way, this is where the illustration breaks down because I'm not always fast enough, right? But most of the time, 98% of the time, trust me, they probably won't let you forget the 2%, Dad catches them and keeps them from sprawling out on the kitchen floor. God always rewards those who depend on him for eternal life with that life. For the one who throws himself wholly on the Savior, there is only one outcome, eternal life. God does not ask you to give yourself to him that he may think about giving you eternal life. He asks you to come to him that he may give you that. Hebrews 11.6, for without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Lastly, let us consider these two words, perish and life. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. These are the two opposite ends of the spectrum that are the outcomes of one's response to the truth of this declaration. For the one who accepts Jesus Christ, life is found. For the one who does not, the horrors of hell and eternal separation from God await. 
Be assured of this, that those who pass from this life into the next without Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from God. But those who have depended on him alone have eternal life. And eternal life is just that, by the way. It is eternal. It cannot be taken away. John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This is what God's incredible love gives to us. And you look at this verse, and I don't know about you, but I just feel like this is what Paul said, and I just want to say this, right? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I mean, have you ever experienced something that you try to tell somebody about it, and you're just like, "Uh, I just don't have any words, right? If you truly understand the love of God, there are no words. You can share what God has done. You can share what you've experienced. You can share how to find it. But if you try to encapsulate everything it is, you just can't do it. God's love is the motivation of salvation. Our actions, our works, and our personal worthiness are not the motivation of that salvation in our lives. And Jesus is the reality of so great a salvation. Look look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, this is the reality of salvation in Jesus. Jesus' mission when he came into the world this first time was not judgment, but salvation. See, many thought within Israel that the Messiah had come to reign and to rule, that he had come to overthrow the Roman oppressors and to judge the Gentiles and to get them out of their nation. But Jesus had not come to do that. He had instead come to offer salvation. Now Jesus is the judge. And he will one day judge all mankind and rule the nations. But his first mission was to come as the Lamb of God. He came that through him the world might be saved and find access to eternity. Now the term here world when he says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, is not implying that all will believe in Jesus. Indeed, he is not universally accepted, but honestly is widely rejected. Yet still, his call of love is extended to all. Jesus is the reality of salvation. He came and completed this mission so that the door of access is now open to you. And the response that you give to him will determine your eternity. We are all without excuse before a holy and loving creator. It's the last thing we're going to see today from this passage, that God's great love leaves man without excuse for rejecting God. Rejection does bring condemnation in our lives. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Rejection brings condemnation. Jesus came not to condemn, but to offer life and deliverance. But that doesn't mean that there isn't condemnation, because the result of rejecting Jesus is condemnation. God graciously extends salvation through the work of Christ to all the world. But that salvation is only found by those who respond in faith. To the one who believes in Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's an interesting word here. 
What it says, he who believes is not condemned. The word, the word literally is judged, and it means to judge with, and, and come to a choice, whether that choice is positive or negative. And so what the implication that the translators have provided here is that those who trust in Jesus will avoid judgment that leads to condemnation, while condemnation is pronounced on those who have not trusted in Jesus. And that's the correct assumption and application of how that word is used here. Paul would use, in in Romans, a different word. It's translated as the same word in our English, but it's a different Greek word that talks about the negative outcome of that judgment. He said in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you have trusted Christ, you can be sure that your eternity is secure. If you have rejected Christ, you can also be sure that in your present state, your eternity is just as secure. The fate of those who do not believe in Jesus is already sealed. There will be no changes at the end of all things. If you're holding out, hoping that, hey, if I just go through this life and do the things I want to do, and when I get to eternity, it'll all be different, that's not going to happen. Jesus says he is condemned. Those are, those are condemned already. God has told us how to live for eternity, and Jesus continues explaining that, the rejection of himself that many embrace. He says in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Condemnation has come because the light, that is Jesus, came into the world, and men turned from the light to embrace darkness. And understand something, throughout the scripture, light and darkness are used over and over again to represent, darkness represents sin and evil and wickedness of the world, and light represents God and his holiness and and here, you know, eternal life. Men love darkness, why? Because of what it hides. Men hate hate the light because of what it reveals. You realize that the message of love that's proclaimed in the gospel is often branded by people outside of, the, of that love, of, of those who have not embraced Jesus, as a message of hate. This is because they are not willing to admit who they really are. See, in order to come to Jesus, you have to admit that at your core, you're a sinner. You have to admit that you can't do anything to save yourself. You have to admit that God had to send his son. You have to admit these things and humble yourself. That you are not fundamentally good. God in his word and Jesus in his ministry reveals the truth. Man is sinful and depraved. And so this message goes against the grain of what you and I want to think of ourselves. And so therefore, we run to the dark, embracing what is untrue about ourselves, hoping to cover it up. So therefore, the loving, enlightening work of the light is often divisive. The last two verses. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus states it very simply that those who practice evil hate the light. (coughs) If you are happy in your sin then you will seek to continue in that sin. You will, not naturally, you will naturally be given 
to hatred of the light because your sinful deeds do not want to be exposed. But understand that hope and peace and eternity are only found in the light. The darkness of sin will never produce life eternal or even lasting satisfaction, but it will always lead to ruin and it will eventually lead to eternal damnation. The one who does not believe in Jesus runs to the dark. On the other side, Jesus says that those who believe in Jesus run towards the light and embrace it. This is what is meant by the one who is defined here as one who does the truth. A follower of God is defined by doing the things of God. He is not one looking for ways to entertain sin in his life, but is constantly seeking to grow in the Lord and be exposed by the light of God. Christian, have you ever sat down and asked God to turn the light on a little brighter in your life? And by that I don't mean have you asked him to, hey, Can you just show me what I'm supposed to do here? But no, can you show me the sin in my life that I have failed to see? But what happens sometimes as Christians is we give victory to the dark. And I'm not talking about fighting against sin. And that's always going to be a part of of living the Christian life here on this earth. We're going to have to fight against our sin but we give purchase to sin in our lives. We embrace the darkness of it, and that should never be found in the life of the believer. Instead, a Christian living for the Lord and the power of God has nothing to be ashamed of, but may stand in the light and ask God to continue to work on his life. And when that's exposed, our reaction should be, when our sin is exposed, it should be to continue running towards the light that we may find victory and help in our sin. And God promises help and victory to those who come to him. The love of God given in Jesus is the light that gives us hope in a dark world. And the love of God is perfectly demonstrated in Jesus Christ, given to save us from our sins and give to us new and eternal life. This is the greatest expose of God's incomprehensible love. In his love, God did not send Jesus to condemn us, but to save us from our sin. The very problem mankind brought into the world is answered by God's love shed abroad in Jesus. And God's great love reveals to us the things of God. Without his word, we would know nothing of these things and of himself. And so what an incredible gift the word of God is to us. You have heard the message of hope in Jesus because God and his love has given it to you to hear. God's great love provides the means and the motive for salvation from our sin. That love paved the way of Jesus to the cross and that love is the only way you can experience eternal life. Such love cannot ever be found anywhere else. It is selfless, Boundless, endless love. God's love then leaves you and I without excuse. We must respond to God's love one way or another. We must decide if we will embrace the calling of God in our lives or not. We must decide if we will humble ourselves before God and accept the gift of Jesus' salvation or continue on in our sin. God has reached out to us in love and he calls you to himself today. You can find hope 
in life and him alone. You can go out thinking that you'll be okay, that you don't need him, that things will work out, or you'll come back to it later. But in so doing, you continue to only condemn yourself by rejecting Jesus. Christian, are, are you thankful for the love of God? When is the last time you sat and meditated on the love of God? Perhaps the love of God has grown cold in your heart. Perhaps you've let the hardships and struggles of life sour you so much in your view on his love. And I encourage you to return to the love of God today. If you have come to the light, God calls you to embrace that light. Not to look for ways to hang on to the darkness, but to ask God and his light to expose the darkness in our lives. Give yourself to God's work of sanctification that you may not be ashamed by the light of his word. We are not told here in the end of this passage. I mean, you talk about how we want it to end. We want to read, and Nicodemus, you know, believed in God, right? We're not told what Nicodemus does here. We're not told if he, if he placed his faith in Jesus Christ or if he went on and did his own thing. Later in John, it does seem that Nicodemus at one point, whether here or later, came to a knowledge of Jesus as his Messiah and hope of salvation. Such a decision changed his eternity and his own actions. God's love is endless and it gives to us new life. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to come to your house today to read your word, to study it together, and to just be awed by the love that you have poured out on our lives through Jesus Christ. We ask today that you would work in our hearts, that you would use your love to expose our sin. in your grace, that we can be right with you. Lord, I don't know the state of every person who sits in this room, who hears this message. Lord, I would pray that one who hears these things and is struggling with salvation, with wrestling with the things of eternity, that you would just show them the immensity of your love, the reality of eternity, both with or separated from you. And you wouldn't let them rest until they have declared a decision from their own heart about what you have done. For Christians, Lord, today, would you challenge us with this idea of the love that exposes our own sin? May we not be ashamed to walk in the light, to ask for you to turn the light on even more in our lives, to expose to us those things that we have tolerated in our lives that we know are wrong or we have been blind to. Would you give us the courage and the boldness to depend on you and make him right? That we can continue to live out the love you have poured out in our lives. We ask now as we prepare to leave this place in a few minutes, we go out and honor and glorify you today. In your name we pray.